It's Behind the Headlines on WLAWFM. This is when we bring together award-winning journalists uh, from throughout the East End uh, to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's headlines. I'm Joe Shaw. I am the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website's 27east.com and sagharborexpress.com. My co-host is Bill Sutton, who is the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And we're joined by three terrific journalists. Beth Young, who is the editor of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Good morning. Joe Workmeister, an editor at the Times Review Media Group. Hey, Joe. Hey, good morning. And Denise Civiletti, the editor at uh, Riverhead Local. Good morning, Denise. Hello there. How are you doing today? So Veterans Day uh, has passed. Uh, it's still hard to believe how fast this year is, is speeding past us, but uh, we had Veterans Day on Thursday. And uh, some of us had some uh, different coverage in the paper for Veterans Day. Uh, Joe Workmeister, the Times Review folks, you guys did a story about an effort to try and get some recognition uh, for uh, some of the fallen at the, the 106, right? That, that uh, they, they haven't been able to, to get Purple Hearts in connection with an incident, correct? Tell us about that. Right, so uh, I'm sure most people would remember in 2018, uh, the helicopter crash in Iraq where seven uh, airmen were killed and four of them were members of the 106th Rescue Wing based in West Hampton. Um, Deshaun Briggs was a Riverhead native, um, um, you know, football player from Riverhead, um, you know, had a lot of lot of uh, roots in the community, was one of the, um, um, community members who died. And um, so a little over three years have passed, so it'll be four years now in March, and um, the airmen haven't received uh, a Purple Heart, which is one of the more prestigious honors that can go toward, go um, not necessarily somebody who's killed in action, but somebody who you know, maybe wounded in action. Um, and, uh, and, and so now it's been an effort underway to try to uh, rectify that and, and get these uh, medals uh, for these airmen, and and I guess part of the issue here is that why they haven't received it is sort of the Air Force deeming what happened as an accident. They were in a crash. You know, they weren't necessarily shot down by enemy fire. What essentially happened was they ran into these uh, cables that were strung together, you know, three hundred and fifty feet in the air, and um, and now part of the argument that um, the people are trying to make now is that these wires are purposely there to try as the anti-aircraft um, mm. um, position. And, you know, that's kind of what they were for along the Iraq Syria border, a place where, you know, aircraft could be coming and coming and going. And um, so this really, this effort began with uh, the father of one of the fallen airmen. Uh, his name is John Raguso, his son, uh, was Master Sergeant Christopher Raguso, who was um, also an FDNY uh, firefighter, a volunteer out in the Comac Fire Department, and um, has really, you know, really did an, an amazing uh, number of things in, in his uh, time of service. And um, so for John, this has really kind of um, been a personal thing for him, and this has kind of become his mission. And right on the three-year anniversary of when um, – when they died, um, that's when he sort of said to himself, like enough time has passed. Uh, I, I have to rectify this. And this is kind of now has become his mission. And um, he's been, you know, researching, uh, trying to find everything that happened on that day as best he can. 
and um, you know talking to different um, um, you know, special operations special operations forces people who were there who you know came to the funeral and he kind of got to know some of the people and um, so he kind of wrote this letter and tried to explain this and um, kind of got it moving through the political chain where um, last week the Congress people for each of the districts where each uh, of the service members lived um, they got a letter together that they sent to the Secretary of Defense trying to um, outline the case for why these um, you know fallen airmen deserve the purple heart. And, who's uh, who's so, the arbiter here, Joe? Is it is it the Secretary of Defense? Is that who they have to convince uh, to to reconsider this? Yeah, I think it basically goes through the Defense Department, and I'm not sure the exact um, kind of chain of command of who ultimately can make the decision or not. And I tried to clarify this, but I don't think they've actually you know had an application sort of denied where they said no, you can't get it. It just hasn't nothing's happened, um, and. Uh, it seems yeah, so, so odd to me, but I mean, they, I, I never, I never, I guess I never knew the rules or never understood the rules. I mean, they're in a combat mission, whether, you know, depend, you know, whether they're killed in a, during a combat mission, it just seems that, you know, whether it was, whether it was pilot error or not, which I guess it was deemed pilot error and they're arguing that, but um, I, I just, it just seems odd to me that they just wouldn't award them these, these purple hearts. Yeah, I mean, it would seem pretty straightforward to, you know, anybody outside who was just looking in, um, you would see, right, as you said, you know, they were, you know, they weren't just, you know, flying around for nothing. You know, this was, right. they were, you know, on a mission, they were um, in support of, um, you know, if, you know, they were the um, uh, crew that could go in and, and basically rescue people if needed. And, uh, you know, they were going to be on the ready if somebody needed to go down there. You know, that was, that's, you know, what they do. That's their specialty. And, um, it seems and like so, they you were know, certainly in action. No question. There's no, there's, there's, you know, however you define those terms feels like that's a necessary, uh, necessary thing to get done. Um, right. it, it's, it's a shame. It's up to, you know, it's up to a civilian to, to try and rectify this basically. Yeah, and he, you know, so he's gotten the support of um, uh, Congressman uh, Thomas Wazi out uh, farther west in, in the district where he lives, and he kind of got the ball rolling a little bit with, and then with along with Congressman Zeldin out here, and um, you know, so then eventually they expanded this letter that they were going to you know put together um, to the um, bring on the Congress people from the other districts out. There were three other members who who weren't from the 106 that are from you know different parts of the country outside of here. Um, and the whole process kind of took a few months as they got everyone together and kind of, you know, there was a lot of back and forth on how they were going to word, um, you know, this letter and, um, you know, to get everyone on board to sign off on it. And uh, so, you know, he's hopeful that, you know, by, you know, maybe Thanksgiving or Christmas, they can get, a, you know, a, a um, you know, a, a happy answer and, and they can get this uh, recognition that um, uh, they deserve. And, um, you know, it's really been, you know, kind of his personal mission at this point. You know, he's kind of really taken a lead for the other families who, um, you know, I think maybe for some of the other families, it's not as big an issue where, you know, they're kind of moving on to some other things. You know, obviously, I think they all obviously want the medal, but in terms of putting in the effort to try to fight for it and and do these things, um, you know, I think they've kind of taken the back seat and just letting John, um, you know, take the lead on this. And uh, he, he's, he's re ready, 
and willing uh, to take it as far as he can. And, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a father who lost his son and he's, he's hurt over it. And he's still, you know, I think there's some bitterness toward the air force in general, you know, when you, you see him, he, you know, he's will always have his uh, FDNY hat on, you know, the, he, so it's kind of, you'll see that he's supporting the FDNY where he you know, feels like they really kind of supported his family after this, maybe a little more so than the air force did. So I think there's still like a little bit of that bitterness there, which I mean, you can understand. And, um, you know, I think just from a feeling of not getting straight answers right away from when the accident happened to, um, you know, now, you know, not getting recognition that they think they deserve. So, um, you know, we'll see what, if, uh, if there's a resolution in the next uh, month or two, it's a laudable effort. We wish him wish him luck in doing that. Bill, we had a story this week that I thought was really nice that um, John Holden, uh, who was a Southampton Village World War II veteran, he died in October at the age of 100, uh, one of the last surviving World War II veterans in the area. Um, he was the guy who would go around every Veterans Day and Memorial Day and make sure the flags were planted on all of the veterans' graves. And folks who knew him said he took great pride in that. Uh, and he really spent a lot of energy looking through obituaries to make sure that veterans got the proper recognition every year. Uh, so it's one of those one of those behind the scenes uh, jobs that that somebody has to do. And, and John Holden did it for many, many years. And uh, Southampton Village is going to return the honor. They're naming the, the railroad plaza in Southampton Village in his honor. Uh, and, and that's terrific for so many reasons, because the parade bill starts there, right? The Fourth of July parade starts there. Starts there and ends there. And actually very fitting. I mean, in the story we talk about. So he was a model train enthusiast. Um, and, and would always, as, you know, as his kids and grandkids and all that visited him, he would, he would try to pass that, you know, that passion for model trains on. So, so naming the railroad plaza, it's just really fitting, um, for, for him that, uh, that he would get that honor. His family is certainly, um, thrilled by that. And yeah, you mentioned he made sure all the, all the flags were planted in the right places. And even as he started to get older, he would, um, by phone, make sure that he was, communicating with the people doing that job to make sure that uh, that every single every single gravesite was was honored. Great, uh, great guy. Yeah, we need that kind of vigilance. I mean, that that's that's important. And uh, I think it's great that they're honoring him for that. And the other story we had, you know, Veterans Day is such a great opportunity to sort of wander out into the community and 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 talk to, to some of the veterans who are still around and let them just tell their stories. Um, and we, we did that with, with several veterans this year. Uh, but we also, Steve Coates, um, one of our reporters, tracked down a really fascinating story, I thought, um, that involved a vest uh, that was found uh, by a gentleman in France. Uh, and it was a U.S. Army vest. A life, um, a life vest. A life vest, yeah. Um, and it ended up being that um, it, he, this, this was a man who lives in Normandy. This was a vest from a life vest from a soldier from World War II when they landed on the beaches on June 6th in 1944 at D-Day. And he was able to track down the, the person who wore this vest and it ended up being a Sag Harbor man who just died not too long ago, correct? Yeah. Oh, wow. Really, yeah, really, really fascinating stuff. How, how you know, apparently, you know, after after the war, there were 
there were people who just collected this and now it's it's memorabilia but but collected these um you know these these iconic things from from this the war that you know that littered um you know littered littered the country and and this guy in in normandy is um you know made made it his passion to you know to track down some of these things really you know fascinating stuff that 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 long ago unfortunately he's not around anymore but um um, and, and I, I guess it's not it's not 100 percent certain that he was participated in D-Day, but it certainly seems pretty obvious. Um, that, that was part of the mystery. That, by the way, we should say his name is John Soa. He died in, in 1994 and he actually worked for the Southampton Town Highway Department. So I think a lot of folks knew him um, and he lived in Noyak, North Sea in that area. But, yeah, the, one of the great parts of this mystery was his military background didn't seem to place him on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day, right? At least initially, but as, as they did a little more research, um, it seems more plausible at least now. Yeah, it, it would seem odd if the life vest, um, you know, originated somewhere else and somehow, you know, floated ashore in France. So I think it's, it's a pretty good, pretty good guess that he was there. Yeah. Some terrific stories to tell on Veterans Day. We wish all of the veterans out there, uh, you know, we just uh, say thank you for your service. And uh, it was a good Veterans Day. A lot of, you know, it was nice to see some of the uh, local organizations holding events again and, and having public events. That was nice. It's a big part of the year. This is Behind the Headlines on W. L-I-W-F-M. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti uh, of Riverhead Local. And uh, we should probably talk COVID, and we can start by revealing, I've been given permission to reveal that one of our panelists uh, has come down with a breakthrough case of COVID. Beth Young, right? You're not yeah. feeling well. <laughs> oh, hi. <laughs> you tested positive, huh? You, you're yeah, our, you're our, Was that just a HIPAA violation, Joe? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I, I double checked. You, you got, you're you busted. He's not a healthcare <laughs> provider. Yeah, we're not bound by <laughs> Exactly, yeah. You, the media is always exam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You are not feeling well, but you're obviously a trooper. You're here. You're doing the show. You, you, you're you doing okay. You, you were fully vaccinated. That should probably give you a little bit of a, of a boost through the fight with this, right? Yeah, I, I hope so. Um, I was kind of hoping I would be feeling better than I am. Um, I'm a little shocked at how easy it was to get a breakthrough case, but um, uh, I got it from a two-month-old who can't be vaccinated. Wow. Who, uh, and, uh, you know, I... I, it, and, and, I the baby, and the baby's okay, right? I mean, the baby's gonna... okay. She's fairly asymptomatic. Good. Um, I mean, she can't really tell us how she feels. Right. Did you know the baby was uh, was no. the, the, was it nobody knew that the baby had the virus? No, she tested positive on Tuesday and I got tested yesterday. Wow. Um, uh, they'd gone to a family party with and some unvaccinated people were there. And I mean, more than anything else, I'm just angry that people are still uh, refusing to get vaccinated, especially, you know, for, for the for the people who can't be vaccinated, like like my granddaughter, you know. Um, yeah, I think I feel like we've we were talking about this off air that 
I, just anecdotally, I, I know of several breakthrough cases that have happened just in the last couple of weeks. And um, it's certainly true that I was I just heard recently on NPR that the North, they're, they're, the cases are starting to go up again in various parts of the country, in the West and the and parts of the Midwest and the Southwest. But the Northeast, which is really pretty widely vaccinated at this point, is still seeing an upswing of cases. And it's probably, Denise, because we're going indoors, right? That's that's sort of a typical that's, thing, right? That's the conventional wisdom. You know, as it gets colder and you go inside, uh, there's more and more infections. And, uh, you know, uh, looking at the, um, the, the New York State Data COVID Hub, um, they have a, a panel on uh, one of the pages on breakthrough infections. And, and they have this uh, kind of relative... Uh, you know, I guess it's to some extent kind of a guesstimate based on on the data that they have, but it, it shows vaccine um, expected vaccine effectiveness. And from when they started uh, keeping track of this in May to to uh, mid October, it's actually gone down. That you know because of the you know increased number of breakthrough cases. Um, hmm. yeah. I, I you know. I, it's going to happen. It's happening. I mean, places in uh, the West and uh, Michigan is again uh, experiencing a lot of uh, infections, uh, despite you know relatively high vaccination rates. So I don't know. I mean, we it pays to take use extra caution and uh, you know maintain distance and do all those things that they have been telling us to do right along, including wearing masks. Um, it's amazing yeah. to me how. Um, people aren't doing those things, honestly. I mean, you know, um, you go you go to town hall and other places like that where there's signs posted, you know, masks are mandatory and nobody's wearing a mask, you know. Yeah. Um, I noticed in grocery stores, it's become, it's become more like 50% now yeah, uh, when it was probably down. 80 or 90% for a while. And I think that's that's just shows the erosion. Beth, you know, the, there's two things about this that that trouble me when you talk about people who are still not getting vaccinated. One of them is I think that a lot of people um, are really not well informed about how vaccinations work. And so when they hear about breakthrough cases, I've heard people say, oh, well, then what's the point of getting the vaccine? Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's, yeah, yeah. Why, and, and I think there's just sort of a lack of understanding that vaccines are not you clearly they're not they're not uh, going to stop you necessarily from getting sick. They just improve your chances from getting the virus and also uh, improve your chances of of getting better once you have it. And I imagine you probably feel a lot more optimistic having been vaccinated to be able to get through this with with maybe just a couple of days of illness. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, and I think just the. Uh, the fact that um, the virus has to work harder to find its way um, to, to mutate or find its way th through the population, um, you know, it, it wouldn't have as much of a chance to do that if we had a higher vaccination rate. And, and one thing I do want to say is, like, I've been riding the ambulance all year through COVID, wear a mask. You know, I'm in the ambulance with COVID positive people, never, never turned up positive. Wearing masks works. Wearing masks works. Yeah. And I think we're in a rush to sort of stop doing that. And I think we're starting to pay the price for it. The, the second thing that, that I wanted to point out was, it feels to me like some of the folks 
who are vaccine resistant. And particularly now when we're talking about five to 11 year olds now um, being eligible to get vaccine and, and the thinking about whether or not kids should be vaccinated. I think that so much of this is not about the vaccine. It becomes about the vaccine. People talk about the vaccine and their concerns about the vaccine. But I don't think that's what this is. This is just people who don't want the government telling them what to do. And I think that we're going to reach a, a real critical point now because we're talking about people's children. When, when you talked about your own health, I think a lot of people gave in in the end uh, when things became mandatory uh, in some instances. But when we're talking about kids, I think parents have a much they're, they're, they're going to be a lot tougher to convince in some cases just because parents do not like to be told what to do with their kids' health, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 but that can work the other way, too, because people also really care about their kids and they don't want their kids to get sick. So, I mean, um, there was this baseline sort of anti-vax, you know, sentiment in the community with a certain you know, in a certain proportion of the uh, population to begin with, you know, right. and, you know, on top of that, Ed, uh, the, the, the distrust, of, you know, that's been uh, kind of propagated by, frankly, community leaders on the local level and, and people in power on the national level and, you know, people in media. Um, and, uh, you know, it's no wonder really that, you know, it's like, as you said, Joe, people are, you know, it's all about the government telling us what to do, distrust in the government, in the media, in science, you know, all of that heaped on top of this kind of baseline anti-vax thing, which we, you know, we had a kind of a big deal about that in Riverhead a couple of years ago, people, you know, pulling their kids out of school because they didn't want to have them vaccinated before COVID. Um, so I, you know, I, noticed, I think there's going to be a heavy lift to get people to have their kids vaccinated, frankly. Yeah, my mother. Was What's kind of interesting is, you know, when you talk about vaccines, you know, people are, you know, like, well, I'm not going to do that to my kid. But when do we give vaccines to kids? Yeah. That, that's when everyone gets vaccines right. from yeah. when they're born through up and through, you know, up through their teenage years. You know, that's when everyone that's when all the vaccines are administered. This, and um you know, talking to you know, my wife happened to become friends with um, pretty high up at the uh, Children's Hospital in the city where my uh, daughter was born. And, um, you know, she was talking to him about the vaccine. And he was like, you know what, like, in terms of side effects, some of these other you know vaccine, normal vaccines that they typically get, you probably have a greater chance of a side effect than this COVID vaccine. But, you know, how do you good luck explaining that to people who don't you know trust science in any way? So, yeah, stuff. we had an article. We had an article this week with a couple of local um, medical experts who made that point that, that this vaccine is safe and parents should feel confident to do it. Beth, you wanted to say something? Um, yeah, well, my mother was in the doctor's office the other day and talking to her, the receptionist there who was telling her that like children, this woman who works in a doctor's office was telling my mother that children need 66 vaccines right now and it's an atrocity. And this is just not true. Right. I mean, you need five vaccines to go to school and how someone in the doctor's office is spreading this kind of information. is just absurd. Misinformation is a big part of it. Well, that, yeah. and I mean, that's scary, too, because I mean, the, the, the best advice you can give people who are reluctant and parents who are reluctant is go talk to your doctor. But if you're not going to get straight answers in the doctor's office, then 
that just becomes a scary proposition. Talk to the talk. doctor. Talk yeah, to the not, doctor, not, not the to receptionist. the receptionist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the receptionist doesn't know. Um, Joe, I'm curious what's going to happen now that we have kids getting vaccinated. I think the next question is going to be, uh, how does that affect how schools treat the masking policy? And I know that in Massachusetts, right. for instance, they've begun to do sort of a pilot program where schools that are overwhelmingly vaccinated, I think it's 80, 90 percent is the mark they have to reach. At that point, staff and students who are vaccinated can take masks off and they already have a district or two that have reached that point and are doing that. I wonder if that's going to be the next conversation locally, because obviously the anti-mask thing is sort of tied in with the anti-vaccine thing. And there's going to be Definitely. this push to get rid of the masks as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the mess was, uh, you know, obviously a very controversial thing at the start of the school year, and people are really uh, pushing back on that. And you know, we've already seen some local districts, um, you know, putting letters together to state officials. Uh, I know Shore and Wind River did uh, a few weeks ago. I think the River Board did recently as well. Um, you know, trying to get clarification from the state of, of what are the metrics that we're going to have to hit to eventually say, okay, you know, if you get this percent vaccinated or whatever, you know, is that good enough where we can tell the, um, you know, kids that they don't need to wear the masks anymore. And you can tell that, you know, they're already kind of, uh, you know, what are we, you know, three months into the school year, you know, they're, you got that sense that they're itching to kind of move on from this and let these kids just, um, get the masks off and, and move on. And, 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 you know, from the school board members, you know, I think there is a little bit of maybe anti-vax uh, notion on, and a little bit in the, some of the school boards, but, um, you know, I think they, yeah, they don't want to have to deal with these parents coming into the meetings and screaming at them about how, you know, these policies that they have. And we've seen across the country as so these school board meetings that have just gone haywire. And it's kind of all these videos going viral, people screaming and with crazy stuff. And, you know, I think everyone's just ready to move on from that and kind of, um, so, so, you know, when, when is it going to be safe that, um, you know, we can, kids can be back in school and around each other without masks and not a, a significant risk of a high spread. Um, yeah, you know, as of now, I don't think there's been any real clarification from the you know uh, governor's office or the state health department kind of, um, clarifying that we tried reaching out to some school districts this week after, you know, the, um, uh, the five to 11 eligibility, um, expanded, try to see, you know, what are they hearing from the state, if anything, and, and, you know, doesn't sound like much of anything that's coming down from the state in terms of, uh, you know, any guidance at this point. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a waiting game for the, for the districts to try to get that clarification. Well, I don't think it's any, I don't think it's anything that we want to rush into, though, is it? I mean, especially with the breakthrough cases that we're seeing and yeah. and and all that. I understand pressure from 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 these vocal parents, but um, I mean, safety still got to come first. And I do understand that that there are disadvantages to having the kids masked, but you know, keeping them alive is a is a, a overwhelming advantage, I would think. Yeah, Denise, right. that- and it comes down to. I'm sorry, I was just going to say, you know. The, the kids themselves, when you have them vaccinated as well and not getting, you know, wearing masks and not spreading, then they're not bringing it home too and, and getting, you know, that breakthrough infection for grandma as well, who's right. more susceptible. You know, it's not it's not just about the spread within the school. Um, you know, you have to factor that in as well. Did he I don't know. Ask, has okay. that been your experience too with the school districts? They're sort of waiting and looking for guidance from the state. 
Absolutely. And you, I mean, you have to hope that decisions will be made based on, on science, you know, um, because I think there's still a lot that remains to be seen in terms of, you know, are kids going to get vaccinated? First of all, what's the, you know, critical mass of vaccinated, the vaccinated population that really, you know, allows you to unmask, et cetera. But, you know, at least in Riverhead, we have at least one board member who is extremely vocal about, you know, being anti-vaccination, anti-mask. Uh, he has, he, you know, he says, you know, during the, the school board meeting, sitting you know, up at, on the dais, you know, this unconstitutional mask mandate. And, uh. you know, he, call, he once called the virus a hoax, you know, in a public meeting. So, I mean, you know, he says things like that pretty consistently. He's a, an outlier, at least, you know, in terms of vocalizing those things. But, um, you know, when you have people in positions, in leadership positions, kind of leading in that direction, um, you know, you have to hope that decisions get made based on based on science in this. Um, and, you know, I'm not too sure. I don't know. Um, There's a lot of emotions wrapped up in it. No question. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, our, you know, looking at the numbers, like things that, the numbers have gone up again in Suffolk, but they've really gone up. If you look at the data on this hub site um, in the counties upstate, which again, that's, you know, it's colder. People are moving indoors. I don't know what the, I didn't look at their vaccination rates, but you know, this is going to be a, a long winter. It may be a glimpse of what we have coming. You got Thanksgiving coming in a week and, yeah. and other holidays and, you know, in a month. And last year, that was um, that was a marker for, you know, for increased cases, too. Yeah. And Beth, I wanted to, to say, you know, you it goes without saying that we're all worried about you and we all want you to make sure you get through this. OK. And and but I, I you you mentioned that that this happened at a family gathering. Yeah. I've heard, you know, I, I've noticed a narrative that's starting um, just, you know, the, the holiday commercials have already started. And by the way, I'm a, I'm an early adopter of the holidays, so I don't mind that so much that it's <laughs> November and we're already seeing holiday stuff. That doesn't bother me anymore. But yeah, thanks the, for playing all your Christmas music I, in your office, Joe. I'm Very already loudly. playing Christmas music. Thank you. It's true. It's true. I'm one of them. One of I those. Do that. I, I miss working with you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a narrative that I've noticed that subtle in some cases and not so subtle on others in some of the commercials about this is the, this is the holiday season when we're back to normal and everything's going to be big and getting together and having fun and, and not a single person in those commercials is masked. And I wonder if we aren't really getting set up for yet another uh, wave of this when this happens. And, and, you know, Beth, I feel like you're sort of on the, the front line of a crest that's, that's just going to naturally happen as people start to get together. Yeah. And I think for me, like the big, the biggest concern with, with that scenario is that the people who are going to be unvaccinated in these gatherings are primarily going to be children who could conceivably get really sick and nobody wants their kid to get sick because they had a Christmas. Um, but, you know, what do you say to people? I mean, I, I'm as tired of this as everyone else, you know, but uh, it's not over. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we keep we keep pulling up short before we can squelch this thing out. And in our rush to get back to normalcy, we're, we're setting ourselves back. So, 
Yeah. Well, as I said, best wishes, Beth. We hope we hope you get through this okay. We'll be keeping an eye on you and we'll be we'll be worrying about you. Uh, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Uh, we are talking with Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Joe, you had a story this week. Um, that I think is an important one that's about how the supply chain issues that we're seeing at the national level are starting to be seen in the local economy and how they're affecting us here. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm sure, no big surprise you know, to people that have you know, seen, um, you know, maybe prices going up on different things um, and, uh, you know, maybe they're buying something that takes uh, longer than expected to be delivered. And, uh, you know, the pandemic caused so many different, there was uh, so many different ripple effects within businesses and distribution of products, um, um, you know, starting off demand for certain things soared as people were home and buying, you know, online buying stuff uh, that maybe they wouldn't have purchased before, you know, you had uh, distribution issues where ports uh, weren't operating. So things couldn't move around. Uh, if, product couldn't get from place A to B as quickly as it normally would have. All these different things kind of combining together. And, um, you know, the trickle effect has come down to local businesses here where you know, they may not be able to get the products that they normally um, have been able to get. Or, um, you know, as one example, um, one Colden uh, business was, was talking about how normally they would buy things you know, purchase products kind of looking a couple of weeks in advance where they sort of switched and were looking at a year in advance and kind of trying to buy that much in advance just to, so they would know they would have everything because it was so much, um, you know, they didn't want to be left out. And then you run the risk of maybe having too much sur a surplus and, um, you and know, also you know, making, making the supply chain, the supplies are even lesser than when you're buying. And this is like the toilet paper phenomenon, right? Everybody yeah, when bit, the toilet yeah. paper shortage and everybody bought too much and that stressed the supplies even further. And you have more toilet paper than you, than you could ever use. Right. Right. And, you know, um, you know, one, one store talking about, you know, kind of appliances where, you know, tougher for them to get, you know, as a smaller business, you know, when the orders are coming in, you know, who's getting, who's getting it first, the biggest stores, you know, your target, your home Depot, whatever it may be. And, and the trickle down to the smaller businesses, you know, that little place on south north on the North fork, uh, you know, maybe taking uh, longer to get it. And then you have businesses kind of trying to adapt, um, you know, to prices where, you know, they kind of have to start charging a little more for things to keep up with what they're paying to get certain supplies. And, and that's a struggle because, you know, as one, um, business owner was saying in the story uh, that we had this week, um, you know, I've been selling this candle for $20 for however many years. And now it's probably really costing me, I should be selling it for maybe $24, $26 based on, you know, what I'm paying to get it. And, but, but it's like, how do you explain that to the customers knows that it's always been $20 and now all of a sudden it's, you know, $26. Um, and so that's, you know, a struggle that the you know, small businesses are facing and, um, you know, I don't think there's any um, clear timeline of when this is kind of all going to be resolved. Uh, you know, it could kind of linger, um, you know, you know, for a while. And you know, we're you know we're seeing it all over the place. I mean, I even think if you look at like, um, um, you know, the the PlayStation Five came out in, in November of uh, 2020, right? And 
it's been a year later and, and you, they're still not in stores. You still can't buy one uh, unless you have. I can't, I can't get, get a new Xbox. You know. <laughs> I've been yeah, trying to get a new Xbox for a year, Joe. It's just impossible. Well, yeah, I think, uh, I think you're going to be out of luck until uh, maybe middle of next year or so. But um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 tough. And you know, I've even seen kind of people campaigning or pushing for people to just kind of like ease up on buying certain things, like just to kind of help, uh, you know, ease the uh, overflow of uh, products that are being uh, shipped around and moved. Uh, but, you know, now it's the holiday season, so everyone's not going to be online buying this you know, stuff nonstop. So, you know, and, it, and you know, there's even concerns about maybe, you know, the, the prices of things going up for Thanksgiving dinner, all the, you know, the basics mm-hmm. that you would, uh, you know, how much more is Thanksgiving dinner going to cost this year than it normally would. So yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of things going on. Turkey shortages, baby. Denise, I, we don't necessarily need to wander too far into national politics here, but the infrastructure bill that was approved should at least start to, uh, help with that right i mean we should see but it but it may take months if not years for for those benefits to come right i would say so i mean i you know by no means an expert on anything like that but you know it's um there are supply chain problems that reach you know the chain reaches around the globe so um there's only so much that the federal government can do um and it, and it's in or virtually every sector too. I mean, look what the auto dealers have been going through. I mean, they're having a really hard time getting stock to sell, um, and uh, you know that continues. It and the ripple effect of that through the local economy is you know pretty pretty strong. Um, it's maybe too strong to call a ripple. It's more uh, yeah. of, of a tide. But um, you know, we were locally, we were looking at you know trying to figure out. What's the impact of the infrastructure bill going to be locally? And we were thinking, okay, maybe this is going to help uh, solve some of the different water woes in the in in our town with um, and people that need public water, but there's no money to connect them. Um, and uh, the answer to that was no. Uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, something that uh, is if it comes, it will come in the form of earmarks, which will be in the reconciliation bill if the reconciliation bill is passed. So um, it's not even part of, uh, so it's not part of the infrastructure bill. It's not part of the build back better bill. Uh, so people are still kind of in, in a holding pattern there. Um, but, you know, even government budgets, I mean, uh, talking with the folks from the ambulance corps, Beth, you probably have seen this. I don't know if you're oh, up on like what was, the district. I'm really does, glad you did that story. Yeah. <laughs> but the cost of the things that they, you know, that the consumables that, um, you know, healthcare uh, providers and emergency service providers use uh, has really gone through the roof. Like, you know, just yeah. the, uh, the gloves. I'm, I don't want to quote numbers because I don't remember them, but it was, I mean, you know, this box of gloves used to cost me X number of dollars and now it's like five times more. We're still um, having trouble sourcing in 95s and, and, and they can't, oh. and you can't even get the supplies. So yeah. is that right? It's still the, even ambulance companies are still having trouble getting N95s Beth. Yeah. We're using construction ones. Hmm. No kidding. Yeah. See, I thought that problem had been solved. I thought we had plenty of N95 masks at this point, but that's still an issue. huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how else do you see, or how else is it showing up in your local ambulance company where, where are you seeing those impacts supply issues it yeah was, it was really you know it was really n95s and gloves 
primarily. And the gloves were was so expensive. And the cost, yeah. 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 Just yeah, and, and these are all volunteer ambulance companies that that are running on a razor's edge with the budget, right? I mean, you, yeah. it's yeah, well, it's not it's not a business. Riverhead's case, I mean, some of the statistics that Denise had in her story, I mean, they're right. I guess the quote that you had was that they were running four thousand calls a year, and it's it's. I talked to Garrett Lake after that. He said it's it's going to be it's going to almost hit five thousand this year. Five thousand volunteer ambulance calls. They have some professional staff, but Riverhead's not giving them the money to staff it the way they need it to be staffed. And Riverhead Ambulance is just like from one call to the next. They leave the hospital, they go pick up somebody else. It's intense. Yeah. Mm. Very intense, and they're not paying people enough to attract people or keep them. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can't. They don't have the money. And um, there's a, a real um, breakdown, it seems. I mean, it's not necessarily brand new, but there's a real breakdown between the town and um, the ambulance. I mean, there's an ambulance district that the town board is the, the, the district commissioners of. But then there's the uh, they sign a contract with the River Volunteer Ambulance Corps. Oh, we lost oh. Denise's audio there for a second. Um, let me ask you, Beth, do you think it's possible that we are moving into an era where the uh, the volunteer ambulance infrastructure isn't going to be adequate? Um, are we going to have to start looking at paid ambulance services? There, there are paid people throughout the East End right now already. Um, and they complement the volunteers. Um, one of the things that they don't have outside of Riverhead and perhaps Flanders is um, duty shifts for volunteers. And this is really kind. It's it's helping RVAC a bit. Is that their volunteers are on duty shifts? <laughs> out of focus. Oh, I really wish. I really wish we had Denise for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I'm trying to let Denise know that we've lost her audio, um, yeah. so she may need to log off and log back in or something. <laughs> Sorry, Beth. Life, well, life on Zoom. Yeah, quite all right. Um, yeah, so um, so the duty shift schedule, it, it, it works in a busy place like Riverhead because, like I said, they, they have back-to-back -back calls over there. And a place places further east, at least on the North Fork, I mean, you could go a whole shift without a call, so what what is the benefit of that? Um, the yeah, I mean, I, they work during the day or in the middle yeah. of the night, they're exhausted. And know? it's been my experience, you know, with volunteer ambulance companies, especially in small towns, that a, that a handful of people, and sometimes it's one or two, end up just carrying the heaviest load uh, for an ambulance company. And there's huge burnout with that. Yeah. I don't know what happened. Did you so I miss the rest of the conversation, you guys? Compl um, complete your thought that you were making when we lost you. You think um, I remember what my thought in Riverhead Town as the commissioners. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Beth. Um, yeah, they just uh, you know, there's a disconnect there, and it's gotten to the point of animosity now, and you know. Um, they they have a contract with the town. They've been out of contract, if you want to think of it that way, for over a year. It's, it's expired over a year ago, and they've been negotiating with the RVAC, and um, they are uh, not really getting anywhere. And they just had this whole big like public kind of spat 
over, you know, the contract, um, the, the budget allocation, because they, they gave them a 1% increase. And um, that was, you know, they, the town put in a 1% increase in the budget. And that's not nearly enough to pay for what they need to pay for, because a lot of volunteers stepped back in COVID and weren't coming on, you know, so they needed more paid responders. They didn't have them. And, um, you know, they're, they're, Garrett Lake, the ambulance president said, you know, with the budget level, if, if this is what they are going to be living with, they are going to, you know, they're going to have to cut back services. They may have to take the ambulance that they have out, out in Jamesport back to Riverhead. Um, yeah, that's the scary that's thing. thing. about Riverhead, it's an enormous district. I think it's an entire town. Like, it, it except is for Wading River. Right? Except for Wading River, yeah. yeah. It's like 71 square miles or something wow. like that. Yeah. Where, I know like, in a lot of communities. You have a different ambulance district for every hamlet. In a lot of communities, yeah. the hospitals have ended up establishing paid ambulance services just for this reason. That that I know it's a, it's a point of pride in local communities that folks like you, Beth, are willing to, to devote your time and energy to provide that service for neighbors. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I just... I think it 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 ends up crushing the people who who step forward to do that, and we just rely so heavily on volunteers. I, I feel like we we may be nearing a time where there needs to be a conversation in some of our communities about whether paid services are are the way to go. And I know some of the communities have moved to paid standby members, paid paramedics, you know, to to supplement the volunteers. Um, it just seems to make sense to me that, I mean, this is a big community now all over the, the East end is, is, has, you know, the population is growing and was it, uh, wasn't, wasn't there also a move in, and was it Flanders to, to start, um, billing insurance companies for, um, you know, for ambulance services, does that, did that work ever work out? And does that help the, 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 the companies with their budgets and stuff, or, or was that, um, did that not work out? I believe it did work out. Yeah, um, but that you know, the, you're not going to be denied service. Right? Ever. No, no, no. It was it was yeah. if your insurance would yeah. pay, they would bill it, but but certainly they wouldn't. Yeah. Um, it, it wasn't yeah. coming to the front door asking for your insurance information. <laughs> it was right. Yeah, Riverhead um, is doing that for motor vehicle accidents right now. Okay, um, and that they are take the money that's being generated from that is being socked away sort of in a savings account to try to build up the money to um, expand or provide a new ambulance headquarters, which is something that, that, are, that they're in desperate need of. Uh -huh. um, and um, that's, you know, so it's not going to their operating costs. I see. Um, and they're, they're you know, they're advocating, well, let's, you know, make billing universal as opposed to just, um, motor vehicle accidents. And again, with the, you know, if you, people who can't pay, they don't want people to not call an ambulance because they're going to be afraid of, you know, having a bill to pay at the end. Absolutely. Um, That's but, the, um, the other side a, of it. You know, it's, and it goes back to, I mean, you know, again, that goes back to housing, Joe, 
You know, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's. Uh, and people having to work, you know, some people have to work multiple jobs in order to, and you just don't have time left over to volunteer. And uh, it's, it's all sort of interconnected, but these are yeah. existential questions about the, the local uh, communities, I think. Uh, just remind people, this is Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. We bring together award-winning journalists to have a conversation about the week's headlines. Uh, my co-host, Bill Sutton, and I are with the Express News Group, and our guests today are Beth Young of the East End Beacon, Joe Burkmeister of the Times Review Media Group, and Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. And Denise, uh, update on the puppy bill. There was a lawsuit filed this week, right? There was. Um, it was last week, actually, but there, there was a lawsuit filed by there. So there are two um, pet dealers in the town that pay, people that sell um, commercially bred dogs. And uh, it's mostly dogs that are the issue. Um, but the town, as we know, um, passed a, a bill, passed a law that said that, um, you know, they, that, that, that's not going to be allowed anymore when the law becomes effective, which is, I think, January 3rd. And um, they can only sell, if they're going to sell pets, they're going to have to source them from uh, animal shelters, humane societies, and things like that. And um, the uh, representative of a group that, that uh, called itself Puppy is um, an advocacy group for pet stores. And he said at the hearing, uh, and in an interview that if they pass this law, there's going to be a lawsuit. Um, and now there are two lawsuits, actually. So um, the uh, sportsman's kennel in Manorville filed a lawsuit seeking to uh, have the law invalidated. And now the uh, just yesterday, um, they also filed a lawsuit, the uh, puppy people and puppy experience, the other pet store in Riverhead. Um, filed a lawsuit jointly. Um, those suits will probably be consolidated for purposes of, you know, the decision and such. But um, the claim is that uh, New York state law specifically says that local uh, regulation, New York state ag and markets law says that local regulation cannot have the effect of essentially banning the sale of, um, of these pets. So let me ask you, Denise, presum- presumably Riverhead, uh, the town board, must have explored this question about legality. And I suspect that the lawsuit was based on some kind of action taken. Or, is it, or, or were they really just sort of throwing caution to the wind and, and doing? I, I, you know, I don't know. Um, the town attorney said that, well, first of all, the town attorney didn't return a call asking about this uh, the other day. Um, but at when this, you know, when we spoke to him after the hearing at which this argument was advanced, he said that they researched it and they felt that the town was on, you know, solid legal footing. So I guess that remains to be seen. I have to say, reading the papers, looking at the statute and they, you know, the uh, papers uh, had exhibits that included, you know, kind of the legislative history, the governor's statement when he signed the bill, a technical amendment to the bill that was made as a result of the governor's statement, and then the governor's statement about that. Uh, it sounds like they've got a pretty good, uh, you know, the plaintiffs in these cases, it sounds like they have a pretty good case. So we'll, hmm. we'll see. I don't know. I couldn't find any case law interpreting that section of the um, Ag and Markets Law. But interesting. Um, it, I don't for the know time, if it's been litigated. 
for the time being, Denise, that that law isn't in effect yet. You said, right? It, not it yet. Not yet. So, uh, Jan- so it has the effective really... date is January third. And, um, and they and they, but they did ask for a <clears throat> a stay, right? To they did. They got the, the the folks that filed last week the sportsman's kennel lawsuit. They got a a, a temporary restraining order, um, and they've got a December. I'm going to say I don't know early December um, hearing. And they are looking for an injunction pending the outcome of, of the case. So, right. Um, you know, of course, if it get, you know, I mean, they get the restraining order because if it, if, if that December date gets adjourned, you're going to run into the, you know, the holidays and everything, you're likely going to run into the effective date. And the sportsman's kennel folks say that, you know, this is just going to shut down their business. Um, but so, my point being for the time being, at least, that's not the case. The businesses are still open and right. they are still open. not yeah. in effect. And you say this, the courts have kind of stepped in to, to say that that uh, they put a pause on this till they can take a closer look at the lawsuit, right? That's right. And then, I mean, they, they could, in Dece- if, if a hearing is held in December, the court could conceivably say, well, uh, we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to issue an, an injunction and the law can take effect while we are uh, litigating this. But I think that's pretty unlikely because um, you know, it will have it will have certainly with sportsman's cattle. That's all they do is breed and and sell dogs. They did don't did have you, your story say they sell was a four to five hundred dogs a year? Is that was that the correct number? Was something I, like, was, a real? I thought it was a really high number. I mean, it was. I believe that's, brisk, what, that's what they said. And they, a brisk they, business. Yeah. And, Interesting. And, and we're heading. The dogs in, are expensive too. Um, yeah. We're heading so, into the holidays, so it's going to yeah. be probably a big time for that too. Speaking of time, we are out of it uh, on Behind the Headlines. Uh, I want to thank our guest today, Joe Warkmeister from the Times Review Media Group. Appreciate it, Joe. Uh, Denise Civiletti from Riverhead Local. Thank you, Denise, as always. Thank you. Beth Young, thank you for being a trooper and uh, being willing to do the show despite not feeling terrific. We we wish you well and hope you get well soon. And uh, thank you to Bill Sutton, my co-host. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) I left a pregnant pause for you there. I'm Joe Shaw from the Express News Group. Uh, We will be back next week uh, for for a similar conversation. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you.